Good. Well, Tim, um, welcome to Theology Live. Um, thanks for agreeing to offer a paper. Might you um, begin and then we'll draw time for some questions. You've got 20 minutes. Thank you. Um, hi, everyone. Um, so within the contemporary Western church, um, there is a, a resurgent advocacy for recovering the place and practice of lament within mainstream piety. Um, today, I want to argue that whilst this should be encouraged, many of the well-meaning attempts to critique contemporary worship and its lack of lament are constituted from within an optic that is often ignorant of its own presuppositions. As a result, I don't believe that we are even patching the surface of what a theologically faithful, pastorally appropriate ecclesiologically robust and politically prophetic form of lament could or should be. My original aim was to incorporate some of the thought from my PhD thesis into this paper, which I'm so close to submitting. Um, however, in hindsight, the scope of this context today has necessarily limited what I can say, and therefore what I offer in this paper is a more uh, biographical reflection, which I hope highlights some of the problems with a lack of self-reflection and attentiveness to those who suffer when we engage in lament. For this paper specifically, I want to highlight um, how um, within our theological and ecclesial settings, there is precious little done by white theologians to specifically address the issue of racism. Some non-white theologians, and note the common way that we identify other people groups based on their distinction from a white ontology, um, have addressed whiteness in relation to lament. Um, but tragically, lament can too easily end up becoming a self-deceptive mode of social and political evasion. That rather than being the grace of Jesus, uh, can actually exacerbate suffering and perpetuate marginalization in accordance with the narratives imposed by the powerful, in this instance, white people. Uh, I want to make this claim by engaging critically and openly with my whiteness at the behest of black theology in an attempt to acknowledge the limits of my own social imaginative horizons. The same horizons that nurtured the historical violence of colonialism, slavery and racism. In addition, I hope that this will prompt all of us, wherever we're situated, to reflect deeply, slowly and openly on our theology and practice, or lack of practice, of lament. Cultivating what Sharon Fenema calls a sense of cultural humility. I just at the breadth of implication here without intending to diminish the magnitude and the specific problem of racism and what I would confess as white supremacy or to use my reflections to make universal generalizations about how this relates to other distortions of lament. I merely think that these reflections I offer today have some characteristics which may apply to other issues. Overall though I want to acknowledge and confess that habitually though not intentionally, I am racist. For most of my life, I have been unwittingly and ignorantly complicit in a society that has recreated this world around white bodies, privileging white people like me to enjoy indeterminable benefits at the expense of others. 
this is pathological flowing within my own body and the bodies of all white people constituted by anthropological, political, and also deeply theological distortions of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For most of my life, I had never noticed this, and I was someone who abhorred and rejected the conceptual apparatus of racism. Uh, I was colorblind. Whilst all of us, I hope, are familiar with the name George Floyd, uh, my confession actually begins in August 2014, where Michael Brown, another young black man, a high school graduate who was fatally shot by a white police officer in his hometown of Ferguson, Missouri. Like many others around the world, I felt such outrage towards it. It seemed so unjust, so wrong, so evil. And then I noticed that most of the people who were afforded space to discuss and comment on Michael's killing on the news channels were ministerial white men like me. Black voices and more specifically, black female voices were ignored. What initially arose as a just concern and a sincere desire in me to respond faithfully to this murder and the subsequent racialized killings actually revealed to me something of the privilege I'm afforded because of my whiteness. I had grown up unaware of the freedom of speech I should listen to me and that I should be heard. The confidence and sense of license to argue with those I disagree with. A lot of life accustomed to utilising towards a posture that orients me out of my entitled sense of duty or rights as a citizen to speak about what I think is right. It dawned on me that whilst my godly anger was well-founded, I could potentially perpetuate this problem by assuming my unconsciously bestowed status as a white man at the expense of those whose voices and whose silence, the ones who really suffer, black voices, those voices should be heard, should be felt, should be born and should be allowed to redeem. These reflections came to me uh, whilst studying at Bristol Baptist College in a building in Clifton that was built on the profits of chattel slavery. In fact, harrowingly, as Anthony Reddy qualifies, white evangelical Christians were the worst perpetrators of slavery slavery and the chattel confinement of black African people during the slave trade. How ironic that my indignation towards racial inequality across the Atlantic was fueled from an establishment within a city that prospered through the commodification of black bodies, a city which to this day still has some of the worst racial inequality in Britain. Now, black theology, necessary critique of white theology of white supremacy. To summarize, white supremacy is a distorted vision of humanity, an optic of profound hubris that places white bodies at the center. James Combs, sorry, shows how white supremacy pervades the church, um, but also theological institutions, publishing houses, and governmental structures, and even, shall we say, the Baptist Union. Its logic, which is rooted in part in supersessionism, assumes white people as a superior humanity 
or if we don't want to be that extreme, we could say more subtly that it centralizes white people as the objective standard, the de-racialized position or the normative state next to which all other people groups should be measured and derive their meaning from. Such a colorblind perspective claims to be universal and applicable to everyone, but actually this assumed neutrality forces people who are non-white to sacrifice aspects of their identity and culture in order to be considered normal. Thus whiteness confirms normality and power. In my attempt to do something about the Ferguson shooting, I was ignorant of how I've been unknowingly participating in a society that privileges me over others. I was, and often am still, blind as to how I marginalize and oppress people whose skin color is different. I'm color blind. My white brothers and sisters here may well be feeling a bit threatened at this point, as I also can be at times too. But I'd encourage us not to react either through despair or defensiveness through what is sometimes termed as white fragility. Instead, let us allow Christ to confront, um, comfort and then call us to hear what he might be saying through our black brothers and sisters. Black theology does not hate white people. It simply seeks to challenge those like me who myopically embrace and collude with our whiteness. Anthony already states that black theology has had at its heart a dual focus or concern. First, to challenge the illegitimate use of white power and the construct that is whiteness. And second, to affirm black people and uphold the sanctity of blackness. Black theology challenges people like me to be critically self-reflective regarding our natural predisposition to operate within this false consciousness. In other words, we need to reckon folks with our being white and not overlook its significance for the Christian life, given that Christ is Lord over all things, including my being white. This is paramount when we think about how to respond to racism in our theological and ecclesial settings. Otherwise, my assumed neutrality and colorblind vantage point could offer a distorted mode of lament by evading the ideological allure of whiteness. Critical self-reflection on my own whiteness in relation to critical voices is a necessary component to engaging in lament regarding racism. And I just want to briefly discuss three ways through which we could ignore whiteness in lament and consequently usurp narratives of black suffering. So these are voyeurism, individualism and consumerism. So firstly, voyeurism. Um, in The Cross and the Lynching Tree, lovely title, James Cone makes a comparison between Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Reinhold Niebuhr. He highlights how Bonhoeffer spent time living in and amongst a black community in Harlem, despite only being in America for a year, and that he was dramatically transformed as a result. However, Niebuhr, in contrast, engaged very little with black experience, ignoring the voices of black suffering and relativizing the atrocities that were going on at that time. Bonhoeffer entered so much into the life, lens and literature of the black Harlem Renaissance that his white peers wondered whether he was actually spending too much time with black people. Um, a key thing here, which Reggie Williams picks up on is that Bonhoeffer did not just merely live in the same physical proximity as black people, but participated in their lives. He practiced 
humanity in accordance with them and their experience, which actually personally cost him at points. In contrast, much of Niebuhr's exposure to black life was mediated through white lenses. Despite his heavy emphasis on the concrete through his ethics of uh, critical realism, he observed their situation from a distance, qualifying people with a kind of white transcendency, um, ignoring the anger of Malcolm X, the poetry of County Cullen, or the creativity of um, W.B. Du Bois. Cohn critiques Niebuhr, for whom he nevertheless holds a high regard, but as an example of how white people um, have the privilege of opting out of the problem of racism if we want to. Um, white privilege allows me to turn the bad news off and walk away, so often at least. White supremacy effectively offers a form of contractual compassion, which is an objective um, obedience to, to love our neighbour, provided, of course, that our neighbour conforms to our image and doesn't actually affect my life, thank you very much. Kelly Wilson states that when we acknowledge suffering, listen to human pain and allow suffering itself to speak, we are impelled to move from apathy to empathy. We have a responsibility, a choice to make. This, this should include feeling the heartbeat of black theology and concrete black experiences which challenge the filters of our voyeurism. Otherwise, we just sanitize black suffering for our own fragile white ears in order to keep our religion without repentance. In short, our lament practices need to embrace the voices of those who actually suffer rather than assuming we understand how they feel. Christ himself did not walk away, but towards suffering. Secondly, individualism. Um, recently, an ordained minister and theologian I know, whom I might add, I also hold a great love towards, when informed about his white privilege, he shouted defiantly, I'm not racist, my daughter married a black man. Um, well, aside from the fact that this was not actually involved in the decision to engage in the prevalence of whiteness, um, that his being white has entitled him to opportunities that have been readily available for him, unlike others. Um, that his being a white male confers immediate access to the domain of theological education, which is safeguarded by others like him from others. So often within our purview as white people, racism is not my individual problem. But that is because I so often do not have to live with its implications personally, nor do I regard my everyday choices as those constituted by a particular social imagination. Whilst redressing individual moral acts, it is vital, and my whole argument could be made abstract unless we do that, it is nevertheless insufficient to claim that we are not racist as a means of exonerating ourselves from any corporate or systemic responsibility when considering the historical refashioning of space and bodies around white people. So not only was this other theologian denying how his social imagination is conditioned by being white, he's also denying the responsibility to engage in the structural racism that is rife in the world and church and which he and I are participates, participants within. Like me, he is colorblind, particularly as Bible believing Baptists. I believe we must stop abstracting racism to the individual alone because such a motif in our thought is 
unbiblical, it's liberal in a bad sense, and a manifestation of the core curve of insane, or the heart turned on itself, which Christ has actually saved us from. Today, many congregations and people remember those who ensured our freedom by fighting in the world wars, attributing that story to ourselves, making those experiences part of our narrative, part of who we are as a people, grateful for their horrible but sacrificial deaths. And so too, we must acknowledge the narrative of slavery and systemic oppression that has characterized the shape of the country, world around people like me. But not as an abstraction, we must hear the particular stories of people like Emmett Till, Mary Turner and her unborn child, as well as Stephen Lawrence, Wale Hudson-Roberts, and others whose stories are merely ignored or silenced or quickly forgotten. As Sun Chon Ra states, true reconciliation, justice and shalom require embering of suffering, an unearthing of a shameful history and a willingness to enter into lament. Faithful worship and therefore faithful lament requires an encounter with the particular evils of our history and how their narrative has shaped who we are, not just as a self-righteous distance against them to avoid repentance. This history is the inherited colorblindness of white supremacy that privileges me to forget that particular history and assuage any guilt. This is why a lack of addressing white supremacy and whiteness in lament over racial injustice is not the sort of godly sorrow that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 7, but it's a worldly sorrow which does not lead to repentance and obedience to Christ. Worldly sorrow, worldly lament is merely a veneer which covers over the problems which are still so apparent to communities who have been racialized, both in the USA and also, though very differently, in Britain. Faithful lament within corporate worship over racism of confession and repentance for corporate sin, challenging the self-righteous individualism on the part of white believers like myself. And thirdly, consumerism. Despite my limited imagination, I do vividly remember weeping and, and groaning even in the chapel at Bristol Baptist College with grief over the killing of Michael Brown. It was, however, I also recognized that I needed to acknowledge the false consciousness of white supremacy in myself. Otherwise my lament would subtly co-opt black suffering into my own self-expression and religious virtue signaling. And this is, this is where sin gets really insidious, so let me explain. Um, it was of course natural to want to nail my colors to the mast, claiming solidarity with those who face the daily realities of racism and modern day Jim Crow, to tear down the idols of whiteness. However, the very ship I was wanting to jump on was already occupied by black bodies in black spaces. And if I wasn't careful, I might end up capitalizing on their pain, making them slaves to serve my own self-promotion or maneuver them to the service of evading my white fragility. Ignoring white supremacy would lead any genuine act of solidarity to become 
a form of colonialism, this form of religious oppression for my sake and not for black bodies. To say that white people can lament racial injustice without recognizing our own whiteness is fallacious. Lament and use Jim, it as you, a religious um, or political Jim, currency at the expense of those who are actually hurt. You're, oh, you're sure, breaking yeah. up a little bit. That's it. Thank you. Could you repeat just from the last? Um, no worries. Thank you. Of course, yeah, nearly there. Um, when I start talking about consumerism, or yeah, I'll, okay, cool. So yeah, the very ship I was jumping on was already occupied by black bodies in black spaces, and if I wasn't careful, I might end up capitalising on their pain, making them slaves to my own self-promotion or maneuver them to serve the evasion of my white fragility. Ignoring white supremacy would lead any genuine act of solidarity to become another form of colonialism, making lament redundant or rather a pious form of religious oppression for my sake and not for black bodies. To say that white people can lament racial injustice without recognizing our own whiteness is fallacious. Lament must not monopolize on a situation of suffering and use it as religious or political currency at the expense of those who actually hurt. So returning to my context, the voice of black theology has challenged me to acknowledge my color blindness and allow my social performance and imagination to be directed. This repentant admission may help slowly regest my distorted white supremacist orientation towards the world because the cries of the oppressed implicate and therefore truly affect me. Reflection on the ideology of whiteness introduces a more nuanced and yet far more compelling form of lament in worship. So to conclude, in this paper, I've not wanted to make sweeping generalities about the issue of um, lament in a universal sense, as this would fail to adequately acknowledge the specific problem of white supremacy that pervades many of our ecclesial and theological settings, and which challenges me personally at this juncture of my life. I believe that my salvation is wrapped up in the lives of my black sisters and brothers, and I would argue that this is a white problem, so it requires white bodies to initiate it in redressing its power through penitence. However, I do hope that my reflections could serve as a cautionary encouragement to people like me, who may be keen to lament suffering and injustice and evil, but lack an attentiveness to one's own presuppositions and particular situation. Lament is often summarized as the language of the suffering. So to some extent, all of us suffer, either from the tragic contingencies of our creaturely finitude or from acts of evil. And therefore, it may be that intuition sometimes enables many of us to understand the sort of sensitivity needed for lament in certain circumstances. However, ideological and history, which I will perhaps never fully comprehend, the story that informs black identity and finds self-expression in black theology contains a type of suffering which transcends the white experiential matrix, revealing a black Jesus. And as a result, lament regarding racialized suffering requires an attentiveness to the voices of black theology and black lives. I hope this reflection may prompt some of us to be tentative about our assumptions when we consider what constitutes an appropriate lament. Otherwise, our imaginative horizons may distort our corporate worship in the form of voyeurism, individualism and consumerism, resulting in a cheap grace, worldly sorrow and a false church. This is what I have learnt in my white walls, built with bright gold, 
stained with red blood from black soul's veins, brought on brown ships across the blue sea under gray skies clouding my eyes to make me colorblind. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tim. That's really been a very helpful discussion. Sorry about the video connectivity, but it has been a bit better with uh, just the microphone on for your at the end of your talk. Um, Tim, might you be able to scroll back up in the chat and uh, have a look at Andrew Mumford's question? Andrew, do you want to ask your question to Tim direct? You will need to unmute yourself, Andrew. That's thank right, you. I'm unmuted now. Yeah, brilliant. Um, well, just to um, thank Tim for that, because it's really powerful stuff. And uh, earlier in the year when George Floyd was murdered, I was quite um, powerfully convicted about my own background in a similar way to what Tim has mentioned. And I identified with the Black Lives Matter movement in a video and some preaching that I did, and was accused by people in my church of get some of being getting involved in politics. And I just wondered how Tim might answer that really. Um, if he, uh, you know, from his perspective. Yeah, the BLM movement has been really interesting to, to observe. Um, just on that, I mean, it's interesting within the black community, people have been confused as uh, m misunderstood as well. So there's like the, you know, the, the BRM, the, the black reform movement, which is nonviolent and the BLM, um, at least certain wings of it um, have, have been um you know um what's the word you know expressing themselves as a, a with, with the intention of of um violence i think i think i um someone said to me once it was really it, yeah there's two and i'd like to talk about the blm movement but i your your question is really about politics isn't it which is linked um i think i think um i'm quite bartian in my thinking so i'd say like jesus Jesus has a revolutionary approach to everything, including revolution. And I think we can so easily co-opt Jesus as a socialist or um, a, 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 a capitalist, or at least some people do. Um, and we, we like to draw Christ into our isms. And that's not to say that Jesus um, and the gospel isn't political. I think the gospel is, is inseparably political because we live embodied lives in in world history um but i think um i guess i would i would warn myself um and and other people from um, saying that we shouldn't be political when so many other aspects of our lives are political we just don't have to face up to it um and just to you know, just just the, the BLM movement being a case in point. Um, a lot of people, obviously, very very concerned about the sort of violence that's associated with it. Um, though not everybody who is part of BLM and not everyone who supports BLM is um, advocating for violence. Um, but interesting, I did some studies recently um, on um, penitence uh, and how that relates to repentance and resistance and. Uh, obviously, many, many white Christians are really big fans of Martin Luther King Jr. because he, you know, he was like nonviolence all the way through and through. You know, when his house got bombed, he was like saying to all these people who wanted to go and take it out on white people. He was like, no, 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 love your enemies. Like the guy was 
immense. And so a lot of white Christians really like Martin Luther King because he's like, he's a peace loving. He's like, he's like engages with white people in a way that we're happy with. Um, and that's not to minimize him. But many, many black Christians are also really, really sympathetic to Malcolm X, um, who, who was obviously rejected Jesus's teaching about loving enemies. Um, but they're, they're sympathetic to him because he exposes the falsehood of a cheap lament, of a going, oh, racism is awful, but, but don't let any black people into these positions that, that we're in and let's not change our life to, to fit, fit with them. And I think Malcolm X and the violence of the BLM movement exposes um, a cheap lament and also evades the concrete repentance um, which, which, which we need to do. And, and, and it really, the, these, these violent movements are, are responding to, um, to systems that have offered an opiate to make black communities acquiesce in racist societies. Um, and, and in this, I, I guess my overwhelming emphasis is the necessity of white repentance through lament. Um, I don't want to make any substantive claim over black Christians' response to racism, um, but I would encourage Christians to not regard figures like Malcolm X and BLM with total disdain because these movements confront white people like myself with a deeper and more disturbing dimension to the problem of white supremacy. Um, actually, Dietrich Bonhoeffer observed this when he was in America. He, he observed a growing opposition um, towards Christianity amongst black youths who, um, to quote, he, he said, he, he, he can see how Christian preaching made their fathers so meek in the face of their incomparably harsh fate. Like the white Christ was being preached to get people to just shut up and get on with being racially, you know, segregated. And Tim, Bonhoeffer, we've reached our time now, but thank oh, you for that fantastically oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, comprehensive answer to Andrew's question. Um, and I might just draw your attention. We won't have time to ask the question, but we've got um, some participants from a senior school today. Um, and Jackie Sams is their teacher. And one of the students' questions was this. How can we project this message into, the more to into a more tolerant society that uses religion as a tool to exercise discrimination. So perhaps that's one we can um, think on for a future date. Thank you, Jackie, for posing that student's question.